Good morning, church. I'll be reading from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world did not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We're working our way through 1 John since the beginning of this year, and uh, the the title of this series is Know That You Know God, because to know that you know God is heaven on earth, nothing better. So we've now come to the characteristics of fellowship, characteristics of fellowship. So the whole book is based on having an intimate relationship with God. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Nothing more satisfying than knowing God and enjoying God and, and serving him and obeying him. And so what are the characteristics of this intimacy with God or fellowship? The first one we're looking at here this weekend is purity of life. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be dissecting verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. Those were the verses that were just read. Let me begin with a story here to kind of set this up. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. So if you're here this morning and all you can see is the fog, I wanna show you the shoreline. I hope that you really see more clearly the shoreline and what God has for us. 
And so let me start, look at this, your sermon notes, part of the intro here. This is what you need to understand about purity of life or even the Christian life. The Christian life is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart. It is not behavioral modification, it's heart transformation. That's the Christian life, that's what we're talking about as it relates to purity of life. And fear and pride can restrain the will, but only God's love can transform the heart. You see, if you're motivated for a pure life out of fear or pride, uh, that's extrinsic motivation. Outside in, kind of the gun to your head. And, um, and not only is it extrinsic motivation, but it's very self-centered. It, it, it really harnesses or encourages more of that self-centeredness, and that's fundamentally what's wrong with us is we have self-centeredness in our heart. We need to be rid of that self-centeredness. So you can actually use someone's self-centeredness to get them to live a pure life through motivating them through pride or fear. Pride would be... Uh, I don't want to be like all those other people who are living a a negative, bad life. I want to be a Christian. That would be pride. Or fear would be, hey, God's going to get you. Or you don't want to do those because look at the consequences. And so that's a fear and pride motivation. That's extrinsic. Outside in encourages your self-centeredness. But God's love is an inside out. It's an intrinsic motivation. And not only is it intrinsic and and it's no longer self-centered it's very god-centered you're doing that for his glory and you're changing because of who you are in him and so the gospel destroys both pride and fear the gospel destroys pride because it tells us that we are so sinful jesus had to die for us so it has a way of eliminating any pride No attitude of superiority. You didn't earn your salvation. It was given to you as a gift. And and the only way, it was through the blood of your Savior, Jesus. And so the gospel destroys pride because it tells us that we are so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. But the gospel destroys fear because it tells us that we are so loved. We are so loved that Jesus wanted to die for us. So it should create within you, healthy Christian would be a humble confidence. No towering and no cowering to anyone. Never a superiority attitude or an inferiority attitude. It just, it's, it's humble confidence. And that's important. So let's define purity of life here just for a moment before we take a look at our notes. Purity of life, I looked the word up that's found in the third verse. He uses the word twice there of being pure, we'll purify ourselves. The, the Greek word, the Greek root of this word is holiness. So when you think of purity of life, think of holiness or wholeness or godliness or Christ-likeness or sanctification or practicing righteousness as we see in our text, and that's what we'll be talking about uh, next week and um, confessing your sins to God. Remember 1 John 1, 8 through 9. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, 
that's purity of life, is that you recognize when, when you study God's word and you interact with God through prayer or you're around other Christians that as God reveals through his light our sinfulness, we bring it to him. He brings cleansing to us. And so purity of life. In fact, I believe that purity of life is the most pleasurable life you could live. That might sound crazy, but it isn't. It's, you've heard me say this many times before also, that uh, holiness and happiness are one and the same pursuit. I think there's not a better life on this planet than a purity of life motivated by God's love in our lives. And so uh, let's look at the two things that should motivate our purity of life. And the first one, you'll see these on your notes, anticipation of Christ's second coming. That's the first one. And the second one we'll look at is astonishment of being a child of God. Both of these are in the text. And so what's fascinating here is that the Bible never tells you what to do without giving you the theological reason and the motivation. In other words, it never tells you how to live without telling you why you should live that way. In fact, let me give you a couple examples from our text. Verse 29, notice what he says. If you know that he is righteous, that is God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, so that's purity of life, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Just saying, you want evidence that you've been born again? Regeneration? You're going you're to have purity of life. You're going to practice righteousness because you know that he is righteous. So he's, kind of, he's not only telling us that we need to live a life of righteousness, but why we need to live a life of righteousness. Because God is righteous. We're becoming more like God. That's that Christ-likeness. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ... What do they do? If you put your hope in him, the natural result of that will be you will purify yourself as he is pure. Now, the Bible uses the word hope differently than what we use it. We use it kind of more like, I hope so. I hope that happens. Actually, the the word for hope in the Bible is no. It's not, I hope so. I know so. This is going to happen. Hope is not wishful thinking, but confident, joyful anticipation. And that's what he's saying. If you have that confident, joyful anticipation, then uh, you're going to purify yourself is what he says here. So what, what does this purifying hope look like? Well, here's the first one that we're looking at, anticipation of Christ's second coming. And this is a deep longing. This is a deep longing to see him, to hear him, and to be like him. Let's take each one of those as we work through this. So we work through our text. So this is a deep longing to see him. Verse 28, it says, when he appears, when he appears. Verse 2, when he appears, it repeats that, when he appears. Verse 3, we shall see him as he is. So you will see him. You will come face to face with the creator of the universe. That's what he's saying here. I love uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It's part of the love chapter, and, and uh, it has brought such comfort to my life when I've gone through difficult times, hard times. Listen to what it says. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. 
So you need to understand that the mirrors in those days were polished brass. So uh, you couldn't make out all the details. You could see that there was a figure standing in the mirror, but you couldn't see all the details really that clearly. And I was thinking, I'd like to go back to those kind of mirrors, okay? (laughs) Anybody in for that? Just the older you get, the less you want to look into the mirror, and you go, oh my goodness, I am getting old. So, but their mirrors were uh, very dim. You could see a dim reflection. So he's saying, for now we see. So now in this life, in time, as opposed to eternity, now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face, face to face with your creator. That is amazing. But then, yeah, there's a lot of things that don't make sense to us right now. We don't have all the puzzle pieces, is what he's saying. But then, face to face, now I know in part. I just have some of the puzzle pieces. I don't have the whole, all the puzzle pieces, and a lot of stuff doesn't make sense to me. So now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. How well does God know you? How fully known are you by God? The Bible uses some different kind of word pictures, and it says he knows the number of hairs on our head. Don't don't be laughing. It's an easier count for some of us than others, okay? Is that what you're saying? Where's the security? So he even knows the number of hairs that have fallen off of my head. And I don't even know that. I lost count a long time ago. And so think about that. I mean, what is it saying? It's saying he knows the details of your life. He knows everything about you. And we will know as we are fully known, our first moment face-to-face with Jesus will be, oh, wow. This is amazing. Oh, that all makes sense now, God. You're the king. You're the ruler. You're glorious. You're righteous. You're holy. You're just in all that you do. You know, oftentimes I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God some hard questions. No, you're not. (laughs) You're going to be stunned face to face with your creator. You'll be overwhelmed by his presence. And so, imagine what it will be like to see our Savior face to face. I often will do that. In fact, whatever captures your imagination and your heart is is what you're really living for and serving. So this should capture your imagination from time to time. When I go to bed at night, I often think, I can't wait, God, when I come face to face with you. And even throughout the day, I'll have those moments in my life where I'll just go, oh, that is gonna be so sweet. That is gonna be so good. God, I wanna honor you with my life now. And, And so imagine what it will be like to see our Savior face to face, the one who would rather die than to be without you in heaven. There's no one that loves you like he loves you. No one adores you like he adores you. And he gave his life for us. That is amazing. Um, One of my favorite books is uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. 
And uh, I think it's one of the best books on heaven. There's a lot of bad books on heaven out there, but this is really a good book on heaven because it's very biblically based. And in one of his chapters, what will it mean to see God? Let me just read to you some excerpts from that book. He says, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God, a longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. Ancient theologians often spoke of the beatific vision. You ever heard that before? Yes, it's pretty profound. Uh, The word beatific is spelled B-E-A-T-I-F-I-C, beatific vision. The term comes from three Latin words that together mean a happy making sight. The sight they spoke of was God. Revelation 22.4 says of God's servants that they will see his face. To see God's face is the loftiest of all aspirations, though sadly for most, it's not at the top of our wish list. If we understand what it means, it will be. Not only will we see his face and live, but we will likely wonder if we ever lived before we saw his face. To see God will be our greatest joy, the joy by which all others will be measured. I love it. Good stuff. And so to see him, so anticipation of Christ's second coming, this is a longing, a deep longing to see him, but also to hear him. That's the next on your notes. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him. So it means to dwell in him. Persevere in your faith is what he's saying. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't drift away. Abide in him. Abide in him, dwell in him, make your home in him. When it gets hard, press in closer to him is what he's saying here. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he's saying that either we will have confidence before him or we're going to be in shame and we will shrink back. He's given us these two two options. Now, It is impossible to think of the second coming of Christ apart from the judgment of God. And so at the judgment, every person will give an account for everything he or she did in this life. And so there will be a final exam, okay? There will be a final exam. And um, in fact, I want you to pass that final exam, so I'm going to give you the the answers to that final exam. I'm, I'm gonna give you the questions and you'll, you'll know the answers to the, to the two questions. When you come face to face with him, the question is, is this, 
What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? Did you accept him? Did you reject him? Did you follow him? Did you love him? Here's the next question. Second question, uh, the second question is this. What did you do with the life I gave you? Now, the first question determines our eternal destination, either heaven or hell. The second question determines our eternal compensation in heaven or hell. Here's the greatest words you could ever hear. And my prayer is that you would hear these words. When you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven, these are the words I want you to hear. Matthew 25, 21, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Wouldn't those be sweet words to hear from our Savior? (laughs) Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master for all eternity. I love it. Here's the worst words you could ever hear. Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the greatest words is, well done, good and faithful servant. The worst words, think about this. This is coming from the God of the galaxies, the the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. So we want to see him, but we also want to hear him say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And, uh, and, And by the way, if you persevere in your faith, you will hear those words. And I believe that's what he's talking about here. Abide in him. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to continue to persevere in our faith through the highs and lows of life. And when we step from time into eternity, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so this this idea of this anticipation of Christ's second coming, this is a deep longing to see him, to hear him, and now, now to be like him. That's based on verse two of our text. Beloved, he continues to use throughout this letter uh, terms of endearment. I love it. He's just trying to remind us, hey, you are beloved. You are beloved. So he says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Yet we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So I I liked the way the ESV study Bible helped me to understand this verse. Listen to what, uh, what it said from the ESV study Bible. What we will be means having glorified bodies that will never be sick or grow old or die and also being completely without sin. Anybody in on that one? I am. I want that. I want that. And the the closer I get to the finish line, the more I want that. And so no one like that has appeared on earth except Christ himself after his resurrection. We shall be like him. In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. 
Psalm 17, 15 kind of gives us a little bit of, a, a, kind of a glimpse into this. Uh, the writer here, Psalm 17, 15 says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Isn't that beautiful? That's amazing. So everyone who longs to see him, hear him, and be like him purifies himself as he is pure. That's verse three. And in fact, I believe that you will even go to drastic measures to eliminate things in your life that are keeping you from him. And Jesus gave that example found in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. You familiar with it? He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. In fact, actually, literally in the Greek, it says go to the, kind of the idea there is to go into your toolbox, grab out a screwdriver, and gouge it out. That's horrible. And then, if, uh, and then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. So obviously, we know that he doesn't mean that literally. Otherwise, your pastor would be up here with no eyes and no arms. And you guys would even be worse off. I'm just kidding. Okay. I, I needed a little company with that, okay? Misery loves company. And so and that would, that's the truth of it. So, so what is he talking about here? He's saying you're going to be willing to go and take drastic measures to eliminate anything in your life that is keeping you from experiencing more and more of God. That would be the normal Christian life. Now, I've heard this question oftentimes given to me, usually by a, a youth or college student, and they would say something like this, what can I still do and be a Christian? How far can I push the line? And I'm thinking, that's outrageous. You don't know what you're talking about. You're going to say, hey, what do I need to eliminate so that I can know Christ better, deeper, stronger? I want to know him. See, that's normal Christianity. And, and that would be the normal response to that. You're willing to get rid of anything. What do I need? Do I need counseling? I'm going to go to counseling. Do I need to get involved in a small group? I'm going to do that. Do I need to get involved in ministry? I'm going to do that. You're, you're willing to do whatever it takes and even take drastic measures to remove things from your life that are keeping you from experiencing all that he has for you. So motivation of purity of life uh, is this, first of all, anticipation of Christ's second coming, producing a deep longing to see, hear, and be like him. Here's the second one. It's astonishment of being a child of God. So they're, they're, both, they're both really good. I like this one because it has my favorite verse in it, one of my favorite verses, but astonishment of being a child of God. Here's my favorite verse, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So I actually memorized that verse from the NIV. I prefer the NIV over the ESV. So this is how the NIV goes. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. When I think of the word lavish, I always think of uh, my wife's homemade sweet rolls lavished with buttercream frosting, okay? It's like, oh, baby, give me another one. 
And uh, I just think he just lavishes us with his love. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God and that, that is what we are. See, so John is showing us how to know God. This is what it looks like to have this intimate relationship with God. Where you're just feeling lavished with his love and, and the reality of being a child of God. It's just, it hits you. You're overwhelmed by it. And so what John uses here, it's kind of fascinating. He uses what is known as an idiomatic phrase. How great is the love. How great is the love. That's an idiomatic phrase. Idiomatic phrases, we use them here. For instance, a couple days ago or yesterday, it was raining like cats and dogs. That's an idiomatic phrase. Try to translate that into Mandarin or Chinese or, or Japanese, and it's not going to go so well. They're, not gonna, they're gonna look at you and go, huh? That's odd. And so, so the translators had a bit of a difficult time because basically he's just saying, he's using language that was common in their day and just saying, this is out of, the, out of this world. This is beyond your wildest dreams. This is, this is heavenly. And so there's not really words to describe what he's saying here. John is overwhelmed with a spirit of wonder, love, and praise. So... So being astonished, astonished at being a child of God, a a spirit of wonder should be in you in response to being a child of God. And so a spirit of wonder comes from believing, beholding, and belonging. Let's walk through each one of those. So here's the first one. Believing has to do with our identity. So how do we become, how do you become a child of God? That's a good question. And in fact, God's part is making us born again. It's called regeneration. We saw that in verse 29. But our part, found in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, so receiving and believing are one and the same. So receive him and believe in his name. To believe in his name basically is to believe that he is who he said he is. He's God in the flesh come down from heaven to earth to conquer sin, death, and evil, to set us free, to bring freedom to our lives and reconcile us back to the Father. So when you're saying, when he says here, believe in his name, that's what you're saying. You're, you're believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, notice this, he gave the right, the privilege to be, to become children of God. Now, this is more than an agreement with facts in the head that Jesus is who he said he is and and did what he came to do. It is also an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. You want him, there's this deep longing inside of you. Oh, I want to know him. I want to grow in my relationship with him. And so it is a delighting, it is a embracing, it is a treasuring and surrendering your whole life to Christ. So there has to have been, uh, maybe you know the specific time, I don't know the specific time when I did this, but there was, there was something that happened in your heart that you acknowledged your sin that separates you from God. You believed 
that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and then you confess him as your savior, and you begin from that moment to live your life for him. Some of you were, did that maybe through a prayer. Others of you, while, maybe even while you were sitting here, it, it just dawned on you, and you said, yes. Yes, I want that in my life. I want him in my life. As simple as what we saw the two thieves hanging next to Jesus. One cursed Jesus, the other one said, remember me. I want all that you can provide for me. Remember me. And uh, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Just a simple, simple decision that you go, oh my goodness, I'm gonna live my life for him. And so our fundamental identity is grounded in the fact that God is my loving heavenly father and I am his child. Now, here's what's so fascinating about that is that every sin that we commit is an act of rebellion against God and a trampling on his perfect love and infinite wisdom. We are all born serial sinners sitting on death row awaiting eternal damnation. And yet, and yet, the ruler of the universe invites us death row inmates to not only live in his home, but to be his dearly loved children. That's overwhelming. That is amazing. God has made us his very own children with all the status and privilege this implies. See, you can never... You can never get out of an identity of romance or money or achievements or career or acquisitions what only an identity of being a child of God can bring. If you only knew the status and privilege of the gift of being a child of God, nothing would keep you from him. And whatever you give up, you would realize it's nothing compared to what you gain in him. Now, here's a question I had for you. I, I think it's, I was thinking about this this last week. Why would someone's sound theology not transform their life? Why would someone sound, so you can, you can go to seminary, have impeccable theology. You can come to church week in and week out and have amazing theology, very sound theology, and still just as and still be just as bitter, complain just as much, and be anxious. So what, what's going on in someone's life if they can have great theology and yet there's no life change? Here's the answer. Because their theology isn't beautiful and lovely beyond anything to them. It's just become, oh, information. Cramming my cranium full of information. No, no, no. This is an encounter with the living God. This is getting to know him. And as you get to know him, he transforms your life from the inside out. And, um, and so all implications of our identity of being a child of God should not only be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts. How? The next word, so believing should lead to beholding. 
So believing is about our identity. Beholding is about intimacy. You need to grow in your intimacy with God. Verse one, see what kind of love the Father has, has, has given us. The King James Version translates this verse like this. I, I like the, the way King James translates it. It says, behold, exclamation mark, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold. So the word behold, the word behold is actually in the Greek text. And so uh, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, if you want to become whole or holy, what do you need to do? He says that you need to behold. It's in the beholding of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that it begins to transform you and make you whole. So it's one thing to believe he is who he said he is, but it's altogether another to, to begin to let that get a hold of your heart and transform your life. You're overwhelmed with the beauty and the loveliness of, of who Christ is and what he's done for you. John is saying, look, gaze, consider this tremendous thing, forget everything else and focus your attention here if you really want your life to be transformed. You are children of God, and that should astonish you. That should astonish you. The Christian life is not a call to behave, but to behold. Oftentimes when, when you talk about the Christian life, many people think, oh, okay, if I wanna be a Christian, I gotta get my act together and start living right, and then God will accept me. That's not, that's not actually what the Bible says. It's not, it's not a call to behave, but to behold the breathtaking beauty and overwhelming glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The reason we don't share his amazement, John's amazement, is because we feel that in some way we deserve our status as children of God. And there are two kinds of people who attend church, religious people and true Christians. So, Religious people feel that God is indebted to them because of what they do, working hard to live a good life. Therefore, he owes me a good life. I've lived a good life. He owes me a good life. True Christians, true Christians feel that they are forever indebted to God because of all that Christ has done for them. I owe God Everything, no matter how my life might be going or continue to go, it doesn't matter. I owe, owe him my whole life. That's, that's, that would be normal Christianity. So religion says this, I obey, therefore God blesses me. That's religion. The gospel says, God blesses me through Christ Jesus abundantly beyond our wildest dreams. Therefore, I want to obey. I want to honor him. See, that's that intrinsic motivation. That love, God's love transforms our hearts. And so, if you are a true Christian, there should be a spirit of wonder that permeates your life. You're always saying, this should be your normal conversation. This is out of this world, that God lavishes me with his love, that I should be called a child of God. I can't believe it. This is, this is incredible, it's unbelievable, it's miraculous that, that I get 
to be called a child of God. I'm a Christian. You should be amazed by that. See, religious people have no sense of wonder. Let me give you a quick illustration. You work hard for your money, don't you? Okay, not very many of you. Okay, do you work hard for your money? Okay, that's a little better. Okay, I thought I was going to have to pray for you there just for a minute. You're lazy, okay? No, 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 you work hard for your money. And so when you get a paycheck, you don't say, it's incredible, it's unbelievable, it's miraculous that I get a paycheck. You don't say that, do you? Have you ever said that? No. Why? It's because basically you say, of course you paid me, I worked hard, I deserve this and even more. So guess what? That's the attitude of of a religious person, a moralist. God owes me. God owes me. See, the acid test for a true Christian is a spirit of wonder that stays there even when things go badly. Here's the difference between a religious person, once again, or a moralist, and a Christian in suffering. In suffering. A moralist says, what good is all this religion? What good is all my religion? I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I got involved in a small group, I dropped money in the box, and this is what I get from God? That's a moralist. That's religion. A Christian says, my career or my love life or my health hasn't gone well, but it's astonishing that God is as good as he is to me. You're just overwhelmed. I can't believe I'm a Christian and that my father will never leave me or forsake me and he'll take care of me no matter how hard it gets. Nothing can separate me from his love. He's always there for me. He loves me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to protect me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. To the degree that you behold the love of God for you is to the degree and difficulties you'll be able to say, oh, well, my father must have a purpose here because he loves me. Besides that, he doesn't owe me a good life. He owes me a far worse life than I have if, if you have lost that sense of wonder, you're slipping back into religion. It's moralism. And I pray, I pray that, that your heart will be recaptured by the, the amazement of being a child of God, that he lavishes us with his love. And so believing has to do with our identity. Beholding Um, has to do with our intimacy and then belonging is the next next step. This is what should happen to you. As you're beholding that, you're gonna have an overwhelming sense. I belong to God. Why am I stressed out? Why am I anxious? I belong to him. Look at verse 1c. It's just a small sentence there. Did you notice this? He says, so how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God? And that is what we are. And that is what we are. This is an unnecessary phrase because he already said that we are children of God. So why does John say that? 
It's because he can't get over it that we belong to God's family. If you aren't amazed at being a child of God, then you might not be born again. That should amaze you. That should get a hold of your heart, and you'll never be the same. I love the story by Thomas Goodwin of a father and son. This is what he said. Picture a man walking along a road or in a park with his little boy holding hands, father and son and son and father. The little boy knows the man is his father and that his father loves him. Suddenly, suddenly the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him up into his arms, embraces him and kisses him. The boy is actually no more a son when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy, but oh, oh the difference in the enjoyment of the status that he belongs. It dawns on you, you go, I belong to him. See, all of our problems are because we are not beholding that we are children of God and that beholding should lead to this belonging and, and that is what we are. It just kind of lands on you and you have those moments where you're overwhelmed by that and all of our problems are because we are not beholding that we are children of God. Are you upset right now because someone has criticized you? It's because you are beholding their opinion of you rather than being a child of God. Are you bitter because life hasn't gone as planned? You are beholding the success of your plans rather than being a child of God. Are you, are you worried and anxious about the future? You are beholding having your future go right rather than being a child of God and that you are in the loving arms and hands of your Father who will take care of you and love you. Verse 1D, it says this, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Here's the way that I saw that as I was reflecting on it. What he's saying is that all that he just said about how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. He's basically saying this is of infinite and eternal value beyond what the world knows and offers. And so the story we started with, Florence Chadwick said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And so my prayer, I hope, I hope after this message that you no longer just see the fog, but you can see the shoreline better than ever before. Next weekend, characteristics of fellowship, we look at the second characteristic of, of intimacy with God, practice of righteousness, 1 John 3, 4 through 10. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service. If you are new here, we would love the opportunity to meet you. And... Um, and also, we would uh, love to pray for you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, teach us how to live lives of purity, holiness, wholeness, godliness, Christ-likeness, sanctification, practicing righteousness, confessing our sins to you so that you can cleanse us of, from all of our sins. 
And may our purity of life be motivated by our anticipation of your second coming, producing a deep longing to see you, hear you, and become more like you. And may it also be motivated by our astonishment of being a child of God, creating a spirit of wonder through believing and beholding and belonging to you. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.